Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We are going to stop the show right now. John Farrell, Lisa Bramitz, and myself, we welcome all of you on radio and TV to maybe the first great discussion of the year. William Dudley is not the normal economist. Yes, his work at Goldman Sachs out of Berkeley, but far more his tenure at the New York Federal Reserve. And he has been very overt in writing, not weekly, but pretty much twice monthly for Bloomberg Opinion And today he issues, without question, his most scathing essay on where our central bank is. Bill, what's it like to write with that language of a remarkable and surreal Fed economics? Are you getting criticism from inside the Fed? I'm sure it doesn't make people there happy, but the reality is I got to call it like I see it. And what I see right now is a Federal Reserve that has a very benign forecast relative to what's actually happening uh, on inflation. If you look at their forecast that they published at the December FOMC meeting, they have inflation melting away to 2.1% in 2024, even though they don't take monetary policy to a tight setting. The end of 2024, the federal funds rates 2.1% below what they think is neutral. So how does the inflation magically disappear if the Federal Reserve is actually not Mm -hmm. making monetary policy tight? That's the question I want to raise in this piece. Bill Dudley, Alan Greenspan in 1998 at least, talking about the measurement and measured and the idea of a graduation, a step-by-step approach. Alan Blinder in an essay in 2005 said the Greenspan standard is suspect. Are we going back to Arthur Burns Burns in the pipe smoke where we're going to lose quarter point measured and start to see some real jumps? I think they're going to go fairly slow at first, but because they think that the inflation pressures that we're seeing right now are going to subside as we go through the first half of the year. But the real new information is the tightness of the labor market uh, and the fact that that tightness of the labor market is resulting in higher wages, wages above what's consistent with 2% inflation. So I think even if the initial impulse of inflation turns out to be transitory, they now have a problem because the labor market's sufficiently tight that wages are going to continue to accelerate. Bill, in your piece, you reiterate your call for three to four percent as the potential end rate for the Fed funds uh, figure. I'm struck by the fact that you include the idea of an end rate for inflation at two and a half to three percent, which is actually a commonplace suggestion. What happens to risk markets if the Fed funds rate gets to three or four percent? Do you think that this economy can sustain that? Well, I I think that's the fundamental question. Uh, In 2004, 2006, the economy sustained uh, the Fed taking the federal funds rate from 1% to five and a quarter. Yet in uh, 2016 to 19, the economy didn't do so well with the Fed taking the federal funds rate to, you know, up a little bit over 2%. So I think that's the fundamental question. How how do markets react to Fed tightening? I think that right now, this idea, though, that the Fed is a small amount of tightening is going to cause markets to go down precipitously, and that's going to cause the Fed to stop. I don't think that's the most likely outcome. If you think that inflation subsiding at two and a half to three percent would result in what could be a crippling Fed funds rate, then are you saying that we need an inflation rate below two and a half percent to have an economy that is sustainable over the next decade? 
Well, I don't think a three to 4% federal funds rate is crippling in any way. It's only uh, an unusually high relative to the last 10 years. It's actually pretty low relative to the last 30 or 40 years. So I think the economy can do just fine with the federal funds rate in that range. I think what markets are really uh, mispricing is the fact that the Fed is actually going to have to move to a tight monetary policy setting at some point. The Fed has turned more hawkish in the very near term. So a lot more rate hikes are being priced in in 2022. But the terminal federal funds rate that the market's expecting is still very low, only around 2% or so. But what's important here, and I think to summarize the message, you think for inflation to come lower, the Fed needs to engineer tighter financial conditions. Bill, I'm trying to understand from, from your standpoint, when you think that tightness begins, where do you think it is? One and a half, two percent, two and a half. When does it start to become restrictive and where we can sit here and say the Fed is now tightening? Well, I think it's when the markets start to price in more tightening than what they've priced in at this point in time. I mean, if the Fed, if the Fed just delivers what's priced in today, I don't think markets react very much because it's already priced in. So the Federal Reserve essentially has to go further than what the market anticipates for the markets to react. Uh, you know, I think what will happen is the first bond yields will go up further. Uh, you know, we'll probably see bond yields in the two and a half, three percent range. And as once we have higher ten-year Treasury note yields, that will start to weigh on the stock market a little bit more, and other you know, risk, you know, risk assets like say cryptocurrencies, for example. But what you just said, though, the original piece of this is that you think when that happens, the Fed doesn't back off. It's not the old playbook. Well, the Fed has to do its job at the end of the day. I mean, if you if you try to defer the fight against inflation, all you do is get more inflation. So it's not like you know, trying to be a nice guy gets you to a better place. We sort of saw that mistake in the early 1970s. So I think the Federal Reserve at the end of the day will do its job. I think it's just slow, I think, to realize right now uh, the consequences of the tight labor market, uh, which they've engineered at this point. Bill Dudley, I want to go back to Dudley McKelvey, Goldman Sachs. There's not a moment to lose. That's what I hear in your essay this morning. It's like, okay, guys, let's get it going. The Taylor Rule, as described on the Bloomberg, is stunning. It's something you and I never would have envisioned. John Taylor of Stanford never would have envisioned where we are. Which moves quicker, the Taylor Rule coming down with all its moving parts, or does the Fed move up at a greater speed? Well, I don't think the Taylor Rule is really that relevant to what the Fed is doing right now. I mean, if you listen to Chair Powell, he talks about the importance of financial conditions. And I think that's the key issue. The financial conditions today are extremely accommodative. To slow the economy down, the Fed needs to make financial conditions less accommodative. How do they do that? They raise short-term rates. They raise short-term rates more and faster than what markets expect. Bill, how does balance sheet reduction play into this as well, from your standpoint? Well, it's interesting that, that there seems to be a growing sentiment that the balance sheet reduction is going to happen sooner than last time, not just in time, but also in terms of uh, the level of interest rates where the Fed is going to start the balance sheet normalization process. Mary Daly last week talked about uh, getting going, you know, after a couple of rate hikes. I find that a little bit surprising, given that the Fed, Fed officials have also said that they want the federal fund rate to be the primary tool of monetary policy. Well, if you want the federal fund rate to be the primary tool of monetary policy, you need to get the federal fund rate up. So it can actually react to adverse shocks in the economy so you can push it back down. So I think the case for being a little bit more patient with the balance sheet is still pretty strong, but it certainly looks like, judging from Fed officials' commentary, that they're going to go a little bit faster this time, not just in time, but also in terms of what level of interest rates we have to get to before they start to normalize the balance sheet. What's your sense of how much they should raise rates this year? Uh, I think they should go faster than what's priced into the market. I mean, obviously, it's going to depend a bit on how the economy evolves. 
But my my best guess is, you know, that they need to do at least four or five rate hikes this year. And it wouldn't strike me at all if we if we get into an every meeting kind of cycle at some point. Bill, what went wrong for this Federal Reserve? Let's finish there. What went wrong? Well, I think there were, you know, essentially four mistakes that were made. Number one, uh, the way they operationalized the 2% average inflation targeting regime by saying that they're not going to even begin to lift off until they've satisfied the goals of inflation at 2%, expected to be above 2% in the future, and at full employment. So that means the starting point for monetary policy liftoff is the economy is already overheating. Number two, I think they were wrong about the, the labor market. I think they were surprised by how fast the labor market tightened participation rate has not come back to the to the degree that they were expecting. Third, they were surprised, I think, about inflation. Inflation's, the transitory story hasn't played out very well. Uh, it, I think a lot of the inflation pressures we're seeing are transitory, but that that's lasting longer for uh, a lot, lot, lot longer at a lot higher rate than they anticipated. <clears throat> and then finally, I think they were a little bit too concerned about worrying about a taper tantrum. So I think they were a little bit too gentle in terms of their communication to financial markets because they were worried that that was going to provoke a sell-off in the bond market. And I think, in fact, the problem right now is that the markets aren't taking them seriously enough. Bill, just wonderful. You've been warning about this for more than six months. Bill Dudley of Bloomberg Opinion and, of course, the former president of the New York Fed. We need to kick things off in this equity market with Laurie Calvacina, the head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, you came into 22 and said it would be a story of two halves. The first half in this equity market would look different to the second half. Laurie, start with what you expected and what you're seeing in the early part of 22. So, look, well, great to be here as always. But, look, I think last week we saw a lot of things we'd expecting to see unfold in the first half unfold with a certain ferocity that surprised even us. So we thought that the first half of the year was going to be defined by another big hurrah. We called it the last hurrah in the value trade. So things like financials and energy flying. We certainly didn't expect to see energy up 10 percent on a week. Um, but we did think that we'd see this big move because you typically do see strong value leadership before first Fed rate hikes. And when the economy is running hot or above average, and what's interesting, John, to me is that with all these changes on rate hike views, we're still seeing an economics community that's looking for very, very strong growth this year. So that narrative is still intact. We think eventually this market will shift back towards growth, um, but we've still got some wood to chop there. The valuations haven't corrected. There's still some time to that March liftoff if we end up getting it then. Um, and it'll be quite some time before markets start digesting a slowdown in growth, which is what's penciled in as a risk for 2023. So I think we've still got to let this process play out. This is a repricing. It's painful. Um, it's got a little bit more ways to go. You're killing me, Laura. Down 2% in the Dow is painful. Lori, good morning. I want to talk about the most important research piece of the weekend, which was Bloomberg's Mark Gurman's fabulous essay on Apple. And would Apple go into fintech? And I want to use that as an overlay to your world, which is, will corporations adapt given rising rates? And the answer is, you know what? Corporations will. Corporations can adapt to this scenario. Is that true? I think that we have seen going all the way back to 2018 when the China tariffs really came into view. There's always this fear in markets that whatever big issue comes out, that it's going to cause a growth scare, that companies are going to be able to navigate. But time and time again since 2018, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's supply chains, whether it's the tariffs, companies have been able to manage around. And, you know, I think it's hard to bet against that 
adaptability of corporate America going forward. Lori, at the same time, you did say, and a lot of people do expect some of the pain to continue. I'm wondering where in particular I was really struck by Sundial Capital coming out and saying roughly four out of 10 NASDAQ companies have seen their share price cut in half from their or cut uh, more than 50% from the 52 week highs. I mean, there's been a complete recalibration of certain tech valuations. Look, you know, we updated all of our valuation models on Friday. I didn't quite catch Friday's close, but I did catch Thursday's close. And whether you're looking growth versus value tech relative to the broader market, uh, we still have big valuations on that side of the market. I do expect we'll be able to buy those those areas back before the year is up, but we're simply not there yet. And frankly, Lisa, I was surprised that we didn't see more improvement on my tech valuation model. It's not as expensive. It's not the most expensive sector in the market. Industrials is, but it's still ranking second. It's still ranking pretty extreme. So that's really telling me this repricing still has a lot of room to go. Laurie, when you're thinking about Fed rate hikes, let's finish, finish here. What's the difference between, help us distinguish between a rotation and broad-based de-risking that we could see off the back of the Fed calls later this year? So look, here's the thing is that people don't want to sell out of their equities if we're not on the precipice of a growth scare or a recession. And that's the real difference here. Um, if you go back to 2018, when quantitative tightening was spooking markets, it was also against the backdrop of the trade war, which was just getting started. And there were real recession fears that were starting to build. We are hopefully at the tail end of this pandemic in recovery mode with a hot economy that no one's really arguing against for the moment. If you see that hot economy start to be questioned, that's when markets are really gonna have a problem and you're gonna run the risk of really seeing this substantial decline, but we're not there yet. Fantastic work, Laurie, as always. Good to hear from you. Laurie Calvacina there of RBC <laughs> Capital Markets, a timely conversation. And one of those companies that needs to adapt to the world around us, it's Pfizer. And Albert Buller, the chairman and CEO of Pfizer, I'm pleased to say, joins us now. Dr. Fantastic to catch up with you, sir. A series of announcements from your company, led by the four-year research collaboration with Bean Therapeutics, expanding the mRNA effort here. It's pretty clear to see. I want to understand, though, my first thing to see in the news, why the partnerships instead of straight acquisitions? I think sometimes uh, being a, a good partner pro pro provides better results than if you own uh, a company. And um, right now we want to place multiple bets and collaborations. And um, we have proven that this works very well with BioNTech. Uh, so I don't say that we wouldn't, you would not see also acquisitions from our side in, in this uh, front. But right now in these specific areas, we felt that partnerships will give us uh, exactly what we want without uh, dedicating uh, amounts of capital that would be needed if we wanted to acquire the companies. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. That's what I wanted to go to next. What does that mean for capital allocation elsewhere? What kind of doors does it open up if the strategy elsewhere is a series of bets and a series of partnerships? Clearly, this is one of the top priorities that uh, Pfizer and myself personally are having for, for this year. I wouldn't say it's the number one thing because the number one it is to stay ahead of the virus, to stay ahead of COVID. This is what the company needs to do because this is what the world needs. But clearly, number two priority, it is to invest a lot of capital that it is accumulated, either through the normal course of business or through COVID. And that needs to be an investment on science. We believe that um, we have the machine right now, the develop clinical development machine, the manufacturing machine, the commercial machines, all these platforms are waiting for new science, highly breakthrough science to come in and produce solutions for, 
for, for humankind. And this is where the capital will go. Well, let's talk about the platform getting the most attention right now, MRNA. It's been met with hope, confusion, and to some degree, skepticism. Doctor, I'm trying to understand from, from your standpoint how you communicate to people the hope around this when we keep getting told we need another shot. If it's so good, why do I need a second, a third, and a fourth? Yes. First of all, let me say what I think about mRNA. mRNA is not the holy grail, but it is a very, very powerful technology. It is a very powerful technology that has produced dramatic results, positive impact, and we are only scratching the surface. So our strategy and our vision, it is to harness the power of this technology to multiple other areas. Uh, the first area that is the self-evidence uh, and the lowest hanging fruit, it is other vaccines of other infectious diseases. And um, this is something that we are uh, um, uh, doing mainly in partnership with BioNTech. We just expanded to a third target. You said, why, if it is not good, is not producing um, longer lasting uh, results? It's not something that's related with mRNA, it's something related with the virus. Uh, as you most probably know, or if you ask experts, the natural infection with this virus also doesn't produce big immunity. In fact, the natural infection in many times it produces half the time that you can get in terms of uh, how long you're protected than the vaccines. So it's not right to say that the mRNA doesn't create durable uh, protection. It is this virus that is very difficult uh, to tackle and mutates constantly. That's why we are happy that we have mRNA. But it's not the only area that uh, mRNA can help. Cancer, it is another area, and we are having significant uh, efforts right now in the world and internally. And uh, an, another area that we announced today, uh, um, a partnership with BIM, are the rare diseases. These are diseases mainly that um, uh, uh, they have as a cause a mistake in your DNA. It's a genetic mistake. Something is wrong with your DNA, and as a result, you have a disease. Uh, what we try to do with uh, the base gene editing technology, which uh, BIM is uh, a master, uh, yeah. it is to targets that will be delivered through mRNA that will be able to correct this mistake. There are several gene editing technologies. We did a lot of due diligence, and we thought that the base, this is how it's called, the technology base is the best, and also did a lot of due diligence about companies, and the best one was BIM, and this is why we, we did this partnership. We are having some other deals that we announced today that will help us to improve even further. Uh, the Acuitas, which is given us a license for 10 different targets in uh, the LNP uh, target. LNP, it is the lipid nanoparticles that are used to transfer the RNA. And the last but not least, it is the Codex. What Codex technology is all about? They are uh, creating DNA instead of biological manufacturing, yep. which means that you have virus to make it, it's a synthetic. Bottom line, what does this mean? Instead of having a process that takes a very important process for the production of our mRNA vaccine, instead of one month, you can take it down to a couple of days. This is very, very important because imagine, for example, you can have a new variant right now if we were successful theoretically. Instead of uh, creating a new variant vaccine in uh, 90 days, 100 days, to do it in two months rather than three months. Uh, instead of being able to create a flu vaccine that uh, you are six months or five months ahead of the target, now you are three or four months before the season 
and you have a better match. Very important technology that will allow us to solidify our leadership in this area, and more importantly, to deliver to the world what they're expecting from us better healthcare solutions based on this technology. Dr. you're running down the clock, so I've got to jump in. I apologise. This from Novak Djokovic in the last couple of moments, a story I'm sure that you've been following. I'm pleased and grateful that the judge overturned my visa cancellation despite all that has happened. I want to stay and try to compete in the Australian Open. As you know, doctor, he got that exemption by having a previous infection. You said something quite important. I want to understand from your standpoint whether a previous infection provides similar protection equivalent to a vaccine? First of all, I'm a fan of Djokovic, but I can't even go to this dispute if he has the documentation or not. This is something between him and the authorities and their doctors, so that's it. Um, I think previous infections, they are, uh, in general, not in this case, in general, they are protecting against uh, reinfections for a period of time, the same like vaccines. The comment that I made was that, for example, in a lot of European countries, the validity of the certificate of vaccination is six months after your, your last dose. Uh, for natural infection, it's go to three months or four because uh, they know that the protection that you are getting after natural infection doesn't last as much as with the vaccine. This is what I said. Can you talk to me about margins on the vaccine as compared to, say, the oral pill, Paxlovid? What's the difference there, doctor, right now? Look, the, the difference is big because, first of all, in, in, in the Paxlovid, we are 100% uh, uh, own uh, the process and we don't have any royalties of, uh, of size or sizable royalties to provide to any people. So we are having 100% of the economics and the production margins are, are bigger in uh, pills rather than, than in this vaccine. Final question from me, and it's a sensitive one. You've set up a strong stream of recurring revenue now with this vaccine rollout. You're being insulated by government policy the world over. Do you worry sometimes, doctor, about the PR fallout from that? The backlash that you could get, making money off a vaccine that's now been mandated in many, many places, being insulated, having that revenue stream largely insulated by governments around the world. Do you worry about the fallout from that? Although I'm not sure I understand the word insulated, but I think I understand the meaning of your, uh, I mean, what you, the meaning of the insulated. But I understand, I think, the overall concept. No, I feel very, very, very good. If you have the belief that it is appropriate for private sector to be entrepreneurs and produce, uh, let's say, products, medicines that uh, they can get uh, some profit out, I couldn't think of a company that would deserve more to make money other than a company that did so good to humanity. I, I'm very proud and uh, for what we have done. And I'm uh, very, very uh, enthusiastic that this example will um, create way more risk-taking in this industry, the, the, the healthcare industry, that will result in uh, way more breakthrough products that will save way more lives. Doctor, a ton of issues that you and I need to cover in the future. We appreciate your time this morning, though. Thank you very much, sir. Albert Buller there, the Pfizer CEO. The move we saw in crude last year is part of the inflation story, not all of it, but part of it, particularly the energy story in Europe. And that's complicating matters for central banks and policymakers the world over.
It's complicating it, but it takes complicated analysis. And someone that can do that is Francisco Blanche, Global Commodities Head of Bank of America. We're going to focus here on what you want to know, which is the price of a barrel of oil. But Francisco Blanche takes it down to the micro theory of companies' minds production worldwide. Francisco, let me start there and save the glory for Lisa and John on $120 Brent crude. What do smelters do at aluminum plants? Given the Francisco Blanche call, what is an aluminum producer supposed to do? Hey, Tom, thanks for having me. Uh, an aluminum producer is supposed to be, uh, particularly in China, uh, pairing back supplies. <clears throat> and what we are seeing now, and we've seen now for some time, is the fact that the Chinese government is very focused on curtailing the energy intensity of its exports. I remember that for the longest time, we've uh, all lived with, uh, for 25 years or so, we've lived with incredibly cheap uh, Chinese exports, which were driven by uh, cheap labor, uh, cheap capital, but also, and many people forget about this point, cheap energy. And uh, I think I think the Chinese government is increasingly uh, focused on climate change uh, and, and, and also focused on turning around its uh, energy economy, which in turn, of course, as you just pointed out, it's, it's impacting the price of aluminum quite severely. And you know, we're bullish aluminum this year. We think it's going to continue to go up. And part of, part of it large, largely is, is driven by the energy, increased energy costs. So as a smelter, particularly here in China, you're supposed to pare back your uh, production. But the same thing goes for Europe. And ultimately, um, aluminum and many other energy intensive commodities are heading towards North America, which is the world's uh, energy haven from a cost standpoint. Francisco, you came out with a pretty stunning call earlier last year, about 120 barrels for crude, the potential for that increase. And we've seen at that time, oil prices were climbing uh, very significantly. Since then, people have cooled it a little bit. Do you still think that that is the pace of travel? That's the end point here based on the increased production from OPEC plus and based on the fact that we do have this Omicron kink that is reducing demand, at least temporarily? Well, so, so Omicron is, is definitely impacting demand in the first quarter, uh, but uh, we've seen cases peak in South Africa and roll down pretty meaningfully. Um, I think a lot of uh, medical experts, a lot of uh, 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 people in the field are calling for a peak in Omicron cases in, in Europe and the U.S. within the next, uh, within the next month. Um, big question mark in terms of our call is what happens in China and whether the, uh, the Chinese government can maintain the zero COVID uh, tolerance policy, which is, of course, leading to lockdowns in different cities uh, with something as contagious as uh, Omicron. So that's, I think, the biggest question mark around the, uh, our call. Uh, but we still think uh, triple digit oil is within the works heading into the second quarter. Uh, we see demand recovering quite meaningfully. And one, one thing we've been noting for a while is that uh, OPEC supply, OPEC plus supply, is likely going to start leveling off in the next two months. Remember, uh, a lot of Russian companies have not been able to meet their uh, export quotas, and uh, Rosneft has been kind of uh, left as, as the main uh, um, supplier of incremental barrels. But even then, we think Russia's incremental supply 
uh, will level off naturally within a month or so. And then it's really just that down to Saudi Arabia and uh, Emirates to produce incremental barrels uh, for the world markets. Fr- it's it's going to be a tight 2022 if demand recovers here. Francisco, there's so much in there that I want to unpack, but I want to start with the China and the zero COVID policy. Right. Can you give us a sense of the bifurcated outcomes to your call, depending on whether they try to stick with it or whether they give it up and try to adapt to a more open type of policy? Well, uh, again, I mean, I think I think the uh, uh, the big question mark here for for everybody is what happens in the Winter Olympics. Um, we are a month away, and uh, many people, me included, uh, which are not necessarily experts, really question how you can run a zero COVID tolerance um, uh, policy under uh, this influx of athletes from all around the world and diplomats and and, and kind of everything that the Olympics. Uh, brings with it. Um, so, so I think assuming that uh, you know, assuming that there is there is some relaxation of the policy, um, we'll see continued uh, growth in demand. But remember, uh, China is 15 and a half million barrels a day in a 100 million barrel a day market. Uh, is the second largest consumer in the world. It's the number one uh, oil importer in the world. <clears throat> uh, so obviously, uh, a strict lockdown in China. Uh, broad-based will lead to uh, meaningful demand loss. So, so we're keeping a close eye, um, and, uh, and 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 that's the main risk to our view uh, at this point. Uh, we think <clears throat> Iran, which is the supply risk, is is less of a challenge right. uh, given. Uh, seems like a, a, a resolution to the Iran nuke standoff is looking less likely uh, by by the day. Right. But, uh, but those are two main downside risks to our view. Francisco, forget about all the Wall Street chit chat. What does triple-digit oil, triple-digit aluminum, triple-digit live cattle, what does all that mean right. to us out in the real world? How's our world going to change with a Francisco Blanche, $120 a barrel oil? Well, uh, what's going to change, and you guys have talked about it in the prior segment, is is going to uh, force the Fed to tighten policy a little faster than the market was anticipating. I think four hikes this year. Uh, it's pretty much baked in, um, so we're going to see that. I'm a little more worried about the balance sheet runoff, um, partly because what we saw back in 2018. Uh, in fact, uh, back in the day, we wrote extensively about this in our cross-asset uh, publications, and we looked at uh, the, the impact of, of that on pieces entitled, uh, one of them is entitled Mind the Unwind. And I, I do I do believe that uh, that the Fed balance sheet has a huge impact on on just generally <clears throat> asset values, maybe less so in commodity values, but we still saw a big sell-off in commodity prices as the Fed started to compress its balance sheet in the second half of 2018. So so uh, I think I think that's uh, that's what it means. It means the Fed's going to be um, uh, having to to press a little harder on the brakes. And, uh, and, and of course, we know that the big forces of, of uh, demographics and technology could come into play in a minute. So, so it's, it's a difficult job for the Fed to, to slow down the economy, to bring inflation back down to 2%. Um, they, they could overdo it. And, and uh, that's, I think, the big risk we're looking at into, into the second half of, of 22 and, 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 I guess, first half of 23. That's what everyone's got in mind here. As, as we go over the next six months. Francisco, can you give us a sense of the pace of that increase to triple-digit oil and what the trigger could be? Right, so the trigger is, is going to be primarily uh, a competition between gasoline and middle distillates, uh, things like diesel and jet fuel, uh, that refineries need to produce. So generally, when you have uh, two big forces in the oil market, uh, the, the, the 
uh, driving and, and trucking and flying coming together and clashing, right, uh, with this backdrop of incredibly high global gas prices, um, creating substitution into oil. That could, I think, uh, be the trigger from a demand standpoint. Refineries really trying to catch up and produce both, both products. And remember, uh, the incremental barrels that Saudi Arabia can bring into the market are going to be heavy and sour. I won't get too technical here, but heavier and sour barrels are harder to refine. So refiners are gonna have to work twice as hard to bring the gasoline, and the uh, jet diesel the market wants, but at the same time, they're gonna have to do that with incrementally heavier <clears throat> barrels that are harder to refine. And, and that's a little bit what we saw back in 2008. And that's one of the reasons we remain quite bullish on, on oil heading into, into the summer months here. Uh, plus there is a big pent up demand story. I think we all want to travel and move around and, and see friends and family and, and visit places. So, so the pent up recovery in services, I think is gonna be quite spectacular once, once the the Omicron wave fades, and 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 of course, uh, assuming there's no third or, or fourth or fifth uh, transformation of, of of the virus here. Francisco, just quickly, you mentioned the back end of 2018. I think a lot of people would have sat up when they heard that because we went from 73 down to 45 in Q4 of 2018. Right. It was a big, big right. downdraft. It feels different this time when I look at the screens. Everyday yields right. are up and equities are suffering. Crude's pretty good. It's resilient. Can you walk me through the different dynamic now compared to, say, back in the back end of 2018? Right. So, so I, think, I think it's different. Uh, uh, interest rate hikes are different than, than uh, balance sheet compression. Uh, interest rate hikes do not tend to slow commodities down in the early stages. Uh, and we've seen that repeatedly. Commodities uh, are late cycle performers. Inventories right now are very, very low for crude oil and for many other uh, uh, raw materials. So what tends to happen in uh, in, in Fed tightening cycles is the first uh, few cycles, the first few hikes, are are less impactful. And then as you get towards the 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 end of the of the hiking cycle, that's when things tend to roll off. And that's what we saw the last time as well, right? So the second half of 18 was kind of the end of the Fed tightening cycle, if you like, um, and. Um, and, and, and that's what we expect this time around, except for the Fed seems to be um, trying to accelerate everything a little more than they did back then. Back then, they were very, very, very gently uh, hiking rates. Now, things uh, could, could happen a lot quicker. So, so uh, we do expect a lot of volatility in 2022. And I think that's yeah. true for all markets, not just commodities. I think it's true for equities. Uh, it's true for, for uh, fixed income assets. Uh, we're going to see a, a fair amount of vol. Uh, and you know, I say that as, as part of my role in, in the derivatives business, but um, the research business. So we do think volatility is going to be extremely high uh, this year compared to, to uh, older years. Francisco, thank you. As always, Francisco Blanche there of Bank of America. It is a time of resolutions. It is January and you need to do something now. So just possibly you'll be smarter 12 months from now. What's interesting is the shortest answer that I know, and I've trumpeted this for years, is a physical subscription to Foreign Affairs magazine. On radio, it's simple. You throw it on your table, you read one or two articles every month, and you are way better off. This month is no different. The digital disorder, a tour de force, including Joseph Nye, Valley Nasser, and Elizabeth Economy. Dan Kurtz Phelan joins us right now, editor of Foreign Affairs uh, magazine. I went right to the Elizabeth Economy article, Dan. She did some great work with us with Ian Bremmer a few weeks ago. She parses China in America and says maybe China's looking at the battle and they may win the battle, but will they win uh, the war? Peace that out for us now, the battle and the war in Beijing. 
That's right. So, Tom, as you know, Liz was really one of the first people to remind all of us and to really point out just how ambitious Xi Jinping was when it came to his, uh, what he wanted to do within China, what he wanted to do with what did he want to do globally. So Liz was really on the ambition of Xi Jinping, the extent to which he really represented a change in Chinese leadership. And what she sees now is just the truly global extent of what he's trying to do. And you see it in, in Belt and Road. You see it in China's ambitions in, in its own region, in Taiwan and the South China Sea, some of the crises we could see coming this year. You see it in its economic role globally. And and what, what Liz really traces out in this piece is the tension between Xi Jinping's leadership style and the extent of those ambitions. So you see, you know, we all spend a lot of time reacting to some of the, you know, gigantic top line mm-hmm. investment numbers to some of the ambitions. But Xi Jinping, as we're starting to see, also faces a lot of real challenges. And he may be his own worst enemy when it comes to some of this. And one of the really worrying things, I think, at this particular moment, especially as you have Xi Jinping having not left China in a couple of years, it's unclear what kind of information he's getting, what kind of feedback he right. gets. So you see this gap between ambition and ability to deliver that could uh, manifest in slightly worrying ways in the months ahead. You are an expert, Dan Kurzweilin, on another time and place of China's fractious relationship with America, and that's George Marshall after World War II. Who's Joe Biden's George Marshall? You know, there's that scene where Marshall retires and FDR calls him up like 46 hours later and says, unretire now, you're going to China. Who is the George Marshall for the president to get this done. I think what, what what you see that is similar between that time and now is really this fight within the administration to define the basic objectives of what we're trying to do with our China policy. So in the 1940s, it was this question of what you do to try to stop Mao from coming to power, soften a, a Chinese victory, which is something as uh, we, we all know now we failed to do. And there's a similar fight today among different parts of the administration, different parts of the government, uh, to decide just how tough we need to be and to what extent we can be conciliatory. So you have, you know, someone like John Kerry trying to find ways to work with China on climate change, and you have others with the administration at the Pentagon, uh, Kirk Campbell at the White House. I think are trying to craft a tougher line, and it's really this. Uh, uh, process of working out how these different forces fit together within the administration. So you can see some slightly uh, incoherent elements to this over the course of this year. And I think the challenge for the administration going through this year is trying to really craft that into a strategy that reflects those various considerations and pressures and the president himself is behind. There's so many incredibly uh, important topics. I do want to stay on China, but I do also want to address another essay that I thought was fascinating about the rocky transition to green energy, especially in light of what we've seen in the price of oil, the surprise rise because of a lack of supply, a lack of investment in production. How does the global revolution in green energy rejigger the global powers? So so this is a great piece called Green Upheaval by Megan O'Sullivan and Jason Bordoff. And what what really comes through in this is that even as we start to think about new energy sources and, and look towards a different energy future, the geopolitics don't go away. And that's true both in the in the medium term and also in the long term when you do see a truly grand transition. So in the short term, uh, there's no better example of this than what's happening now with Russia and Ukraine and Europe, where in the short term, Russia has more influence from its energy resources. And that's a big uh, tool that it brings to the, the Ukraine crisis. And then in the long run, when you look at things like um, rare earth materials and the kinds of uh, inputs to all the parts of the green supply chain, all of that's going to become geopolitically complicated 
just in the way that oil has been traditionally. So even as you consider uh, a very different energy future, a lot of the dynamics and risks that are very familiar to us from past decades are not going to go away. And in fact, in the short term, uh, they may go up, especially if policymakers don't really appreciate those risks in the near term. Well, I was just thinking also about Kazakhstan, for example, and the uranium output, that they're basically the Saudi Arabia of uranium, and people are suddenly aware of this uh, because of its input to nuclear energy. Who are going to be the powers of the green future that you foresee, even with some of the rockiness along the way? So this, to go, to go back to China, you know, China has been very, very deliberate, as you all know, in building up its power here. And I think before most other governments were really thinking in these terms, China saw that be, be, by becoming the green energy superpower, it's obviously still uh, using a lot of coal and using plenty of, uh, of, of dirty energy. But it really set about trying to dominate the supply chain and dominate a lot of these industries that subsidize these industries really heavily. But you also have a lot of uh, much more kind of complicated geopolitical spaces where uh, mining is, re- is really uh, prevalent. So you have of the the DRC, the Congo, where there there are important mines. You have places like Chile and Bolivia. All of these bring their own foreign policy questions. So there was obviously a time when we would have worried about uh, securing oil supplies in the Middle East, but now it's going to be this major foreign policy consideration. Thinking about those uh, those materials that are in again some some complicated countries that are going to bring political challenges of their own. Dan, thank you. Dan Kurtz feeling there of foreign affairs. Tom, what a start for geopolitics in 22. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.